You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Miranda. And this is Why We Do What We Do. And so we are finally here for part three on uh, intelligence and the IQ. Yay. Yeah. Sweet. All right, so let's quickly try and summarize the things that we've talked about. Um, as I said in the last version of this, or part two, that I think that these this particular episode will mostly be able to stand on its own in terms of the things that we cover. And that being said, there are a lot of things that we talked about that it would probably be useful to have a little bit of that background information on. And so let's just do a quick summary of what we talked about. And so, uh, uh, Miranda, what did we talk about in uh, part one of this? Yeah, so part one, we really just kind of covered the definition of intelligence. You know, we went into the origins of that definition, um, just where that word came from, and then just how that concept developed over time. Awesome. And that it's also um, somewhat uh, culturally bound. So depending on where you are in the world, that definition of intelligence changes a little bit. And then in part two, we covered a lot more of the history of some of the attempts that have been made to measure this concept called intelligence, primarily around looking at skulls, uh, various parts of the body in various orientations, um, sometimes looking at the brain uh, as well, and usually measuring some physical dimension of those things. So for example, how many mustard seeds could fit inside of a skull or lead shot, uh, how big around the skull is, which part of the skull was enlarged, um, how many neurons were packed into the corpus callosum at either the front or the rear end of the corpus callosum, the relative position of the uh, foramen magnum or the hole at the base of the skull that our spinal cord passes through, um, and many other things that people would use those in attempts to refer to those physical characteristics as markers of intelligence and, in a way, evolution. Um, And so that's sort of what we covered there. And So today we're at the third part of our series on intelligence, um, and we will um, be really covering the more modern history of intelligence testing specifically and how that has been used, what the tests were, who were the big players in that, uh, in the development of that. And then we'll uh, wrap up with the end of where sort of things have come, like where are we at currently uh, with, with intelligence. So let's go ahead and just jump right in. Sure. So... When we're starting to talk about kind of the contemporary um, view of intelligence and particularly of the IQ test, which we'll get into, um, we have to mention the key person in all this, uh, which was a man named Alfred Binet. Right. And he was a French psychologist. He was born in 1857. And he first became interested in hypnosis, which will be a topic we'll talk about very soon um, in an upcoming episode. Uh, But... When his the work of uh, the teacher, the person he was working with, um, it, it really failed when people tried to look at it under close scientific scrutiny in terms of at least the results that he was claiming it, pro- it could produce. Uh, Binet sort of became disillusioned with that, uh, that research and, uh, and sort of tried to distance himself from that, that particular line of work. Exactly. So Binet went ahead and turned to studying intelligence, and he was largely influenced by the work of those working in intelligence, such as Paul Broca, Paul Mustard Seeds and Skulls Broca. We know him (laughs) from our our previous episode where we described a little bit of the experimentation and um, ways he went about measuring intelligence. Right. And uh, his particular reports focused 
really heavily on recording like the objective quantified data. Um, and so that really may have seemed especially appealing to Binet, who, as I mentioned, had sort of became had become increasingly sensitive to potentially making embarrassing public admissions, uh, which he had to do with his previous sort of mentor when uh, his it came to be the case that uh, research was showing that it was sort of a sham. I, f- I feel like it's possible that that contributed to Binet's sensitivity to have being put in that position, um, which will be important later in some of the decisions that he'll make and, uh, and how he behaves with respect to those scientific experiments. Exactly. So he was really excited uh, when he kind of started jumping into the study of intelligence, and he never really doubted or questioned Broca's conclusions about intelligence. But he went ahead and and did a few of his own studies, and he was surprised to find that his initial results didn't really line up with Broca's conclusions. Right, and so um, it's possible that the reason that he chose to uh, focus on this on this um, this approach that Broca was taking again, as you mentioned, because it was it's seemingly at least much more objective, and that his experience with that hypnosis situation um, had really uh, he had made the choice to really uh, be careful with his science rather than try and justify and rationalize uh, those experiments, uh, which is something that Broca actually did do. Um, But anyway, so he went on to study school children and employing Broca's methods and his hypotheses, he uh, he went about identifying the best pupils and the worst pupils. So the best and worst students in the school, according to the teachers, right? And so then what he wanted to do was compare their, their skulls um, and he was interested in, in the skulls as a, a marker of how, how large their brains must have been. But he went about measuring their skulls to identify intelligence. So he was surprised that there was basically no difference in sizes and that the sizes basically only appeared to correlate with height, which, you know, as we know and we discussed um, in our last episode, that makes sense. It's not necessarily the size of the brain or the size of the skull that's really indicative of brain size, it usually correlates far more with the actual stature or the or the size of the body. Right. And he did quite a bit of the of investigation with this procedure, really looking at it from different angles. Um, we're not going to go over it here. But the further he dug down into this, uh, trying to find the sort of reports that Paul Broca hypothesized he should find and even uh, replicating some of the work that Broca had done, he found even less support for that general idea that skull size was representative of performance and intelligence. For example, the front of the skulls, which again was believed to represent higher intelligence, didn't yield any real support uh, for this idea of intelligence. Uh, The relative variability in size, um, again, it really overlapped entirely both for the poor performing students as well as the high performing students almost completely equally. And even though the smallest skulls did often belong to the poorest performing students, so did the largest skulls. So that, again, saying that even those low performers sometimes had the largest skull. So there was just, there's a lot of variability there. And then basically every other measure of the head that was supposed to correlate with this intelligence thing really favored um, the poor performing students just as often as it would favor the high performance students and was therefore had no real sensitive measure to um, whether or not they were actually smart or would be good at, at academic things in school. So giving credit where credit's due, you know, Binet really was a skeptical scientist. And he began to suspect that if and when he found differences between, you know, the school size and intelligence, they might be due to his own suggestibility and biased expectations rather than any sort of actual 
valid measurement. And I love this quote from him. He said, quote, I feared that in making measurements on heads with the intention of finding a difference in volume between an intelligent and a less intelligent head, I would be led to increase unconsciously and in good faith the cephalic volume of intelligent heads and to decrease that of unintelligent heads, unquote. So it's hard to imagine how different things would have turned out in history if some of the scientists mentioned here, some of the ones that weren't mentioned here, and, and some that are even still working today. It's hard to imagine how different things would be if they brought that same level of scientific skepticism to their work. Now, it is worth pointing out that almost all scientists really do bring that level of skepticism to their work, but some do not. And some of those who do not often sort of stand out and appear to be sort of more cutting edge because they are outside of the consensus of those people who generally do apply that filter to their work. It's tricky because you don't want to say that those people who stand out from the norm are always incorrect because oftentimes they are, and they are leading the charge on a brand new way of understanding things because they're doing good research. And sometimes, probably more often, the people who have really stepped away from what's generally well understood in science are people who are making unjustified claims and leaps in logic. Exactly. And so, you know, Binet being the scientist that he was, he eventually abandoned attempts to identify the physical manifestations of intelligence and then went ahead and turn towards measuring performance. And so on that, in 1904, he was working in France and the prime minister commissioned Binet to develop a method for identifying those poor performing students so that they could receive, you know, the kind of remedial and, and special education services they might need to get caught up. And again, the, it's really important to point out that the intention was so that these students could get uh, brought uh, up to a level of, of achievement in school that they were on par with where they should be, where their peers would be. And it, the intention was not at all so that they could be permanently held back as a, as a, a function of having identified that their level of performance may have been somewhat below that of their peers. And so his pr approach was to come up with a variety of skills tests. Um, and he wanted to have as much variety as possible. So he also wanted to avoid testing any skills that were things that could simply be taught. Right, as if there were any of the skills that he were targeting were things that couldn't be taught. Right. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. <laughs> he, the idea was, though, is that he wanted them to be, you know, in theory, abstract and involve kind of problem solving, things that would hopefully measure some sort of innate skill rather than something that would be taught. Totally. And so the original version of the IQ test um, had essentially ages assigned to each task. And specifically what was going on here was that um, these ages were the uh, presumed age at which someone should be able to uh, should be expected to be able to complete that particular task. So, for example, a three year old should be able to. I don't know, uh, stack blocks in a particular way or answer a question uh, where there's sort of a riddle embedded or something like that. And the highest age at which someone could complete that task was, uh, or those series of tasks, was referred to then as their mental age. Yeah, and so later this German psychologist came about. His name was William Stern, maybe Wilhelm Stern, if we're going <laughs> right. to use the German pronunciation. And he made a recommendation to divide the tester's mental age by the chronological age so that the number would yield a quotient. That's where we get the uh, the number produced from the test, which became known as the intelligent quotient or the IQ. Yeah. So previously, the original score, the way that it was devised, was simply reporting on what that score was with respect to their mental age. And there was a subtracted, uh, the mental age was subtracted from their chronological age to get a relative 
offensive uh, score. Uh, the and then um, Stern suggested the the quotient instead. So logically speaking, that means that someone who performs exactly as would be expected by those test items by peers of the same age would have exactly an IQ of 1.0 or a quotient of 100. Okay, so for example. Um, a five-year-old who accurately completes every task that would be expected of a five-year-old and no more than that would get a five divided by five, which would equal one, right? And that's 100%. So their IQ then would be 100. And a person who performed at an age over what might be expected by peers of their same age would receive something greater than one, such as a 1.2 or 1.5, which would yield an IQ of 150 or 120. Uh, respectively, um, or if they were at twice the uh, age at the time of their taking their test, um, an IQ of 200. Yeah, and Binet was very firm that the purpose of his test was to place students in remedial education so that they could get caught up. And I love this. This is one of these earlier forms of academic triage. And it's much like what has turned into today the multi-tiered systems of support, or MTSS, uh, the uh, positive behavior intervention support, or PBIS. See also our episode where we interviewed Dr. Sugai. Um, and the new uh, the response to intervention, or RTI, models that are have been commonly and successfully implemented in a lot of the school systems in the last couple of decades. That's really cool. So he really is kind of a forefather of, you know, kind of modern day approach to individualized education. In in a way, yes. I think he the what he did with this test was uh, did lead to contribution that had that effect down the road. Yeah, fair enough. So and he even said that the scale does not permit the measure of intelligence because intellectual qualities are not superposable and therefore cannot be measured as linear surfaces are measured. Yeah, you can't just sit down with a tape measure and put it on someone's head and stretch it out till you get to where their intelligence is. It's just it's way more complicated than that. And it also refers to a lot of different things depending on the context. And so Binet went on to state his concern about his test that he had developed, that people would use that number, that quotient that they got as a label for those students and as many of them have done in the past um, so he was a little bit prescient of him in this case um, but you would use that number as an excuse to hold students back and a judgment of their overall sort of quality as a human being teachers you might even argue that uh, a struggling student should be removed from the school or at least from their classroom because they weren't smart enough to be there and they were incapable of catching up because the teacher might say of their reduced mental age relative to the actual age and that of the peers in the classroom and the teachers might have this idea that the proportion that number that was received from having participated in that test would create sort of an illusion uh, for uh, for the people who have a stake in maybe getting rid of that student, um, to others, that the, that proportion that was a fixed, immutable characteristic of that student. It was just part of who they were. Yeah. Furthermore, Binet also specifically pointed out that IQ is not an inborn quality and that at the time the test is administered to a student, it must be acknowledged that the test does not comment on the past history or the future potential of that student, only what's happening in that present moment. And my absolute favorite statement from Binet on this point, he says that some people have given their moral support to this disgusting idea that an individual's intelligence is fixed. He says, quote, we must protest and react against this brutal pessimism. We must try to demonstrate that it is founded upon nothing, end quote. So Binet died in 1911, and this was only six years after developing his test. So he didn't really get to see kind of everything that would be extrapolated from the IQ test. Or uh, or comment or make any contribution to some of the um, 
changes and adaptations that people apply to it as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So let's move on to then what became of this test with with uh, that Binet had developed. Sure. So a few more people followed Binet and used his test to rehash old racist ideas. Um, we won't go over them all here, but they applied their interpretations of the IQ test to suggest things like sterilization programs, uh, support segregation, um, make job placement, uh, make suggestions regarding like military rank, also immigration approval processes and compulsory institutionalization or imprisonment. And so uh, there was, uh, we're not going to go over all those people, but I want to comment on the one that you mentioned uh, with the uh, immigration approval. And uh, so there was this man named Henry H. Goddard and who, among many other things uh, that he did, he set up this program to test immigrants coming to America on a version of an intelligence test. Okay. And so you have to imagine these people are, have been on a boat um, coming you know, to the United States across the Atlantic Ocean for more than a month. Many of them do not speak any English, or if they do, it's not as fluent or at least not in the style of the American English. And then Goddard would come in and he would give them these English tests, often using uh, utensils and stuff that some of these immigrants had never even encountered before in their life. Many of them had never, ever before held a pencil or a book. you know. And then he was somehow flabbergasted and astonished that the people that he tested were performing pretty badly on this test. And even he, who believed in this hereditarian idea that people were born with a fixed amount of intelligence that didn't really change, um, even he couldn't quite reconcile the fact that the implications of the fact that these immigrants would perform so poorly sort of suggested that the peop- the, where they came from was an entire nation of people who would be considered mentally handicapped relative to the U.S. So he sort of shifted his position on this a little bit, tried to find other ways of testing, but in general sort of concluded, yeah, I guess that Americans are just these really smart people. Well, and that's counter to, you know, Binet's position, which is that this IQ test is, is representative of individuals in that exact precise moment in time. So these people who were coming off a boat who had no exposure to any of the instruments, as you mentioned, who didn't know the language, of course, they're not going to score well, you know, it just, it's just, it, it it's a self, self-fulfilling kind of prophecy. Yeah, in exactly a way. right. And so um, the next big couple of players to discuss in terms of this, we'll go over in a little bit more uh, detail, and they are uh, Lewis Terman, Cyril Burt, and Charles Spearman. And they're not exactly in the order in which they occurred, but there's a reason for that we'll go into in a moment. So Lewis Terman was a hereditarian, um, and he had this view of intelligence that it was biological, um, that it was racially distinguished, you know, meaning that dark-skinned races were born with lower capacity for intelligence. And um, can you talk a little bit about his major contribution? Well, um, contrib- yeah, quote-unquote <laughs> Quote-unquote. <laughs> exactly. Um, what he really did is he led to a, a significant adaptation and extension of Binet's original IQ test. And in addition, he really believed that this should be applied to everyone, not just those students who were at risk of being of, of, of underperforming in their classroom and needing to, uh, to have remediation. So he really pushed to have the IQ test applied to all students um, and, and all people in general uh, and, and to get it and to make it much more popular. And so he went on to develop what became known as the Stanford Binet Intelligent Test. And this is even around today. You can actually go on. There's a free web application and you can take this version of the test for free. 
Right. It was, uh, it, this is one of them. There are a few intelligence tests that are still implemented. Um, the, uh, the Stanford Binet is a, is a common one. The Woodcock Johnson is another. Um, and, and they're all essentially have developed from the original idea of the IQ test of having sort of that hodgepodge of random skills that you attest and that they are in these groups and subgroups that are designed to interpret or determine in some way what your capacity for performance would be. Later in his career, um, although Terman did come from the hereditarian perspective that people were born with a capacity for intelligence, he did shift positions a, a bit and did decide eventually that education probably could improve some intelligence for people in some way. Just uh, maybe. Yeah, just so, uh, you know, he wasn't totally ignoring the data on this, <laughs> which is good. And then we have we have another uh, new character. Now, this is the one that's particularly out of order. And uh, and this uh, he, he actually comes after Charles Spearman. But let's discuss briefly Cyril Burt. Sure. So he was a researcher in educational psychology who really cut his teeth on mental testing in schools. He was also a diehard hereditarian. And although he does follow Charles Spearman, I, I put him in here because he... He didn't really make any particularly valuable contributions to the IQ and all that, but he w he was an important figure in understanding uh, sort of what he did do with respect to these tests and and research in general. So Bert actually conducted several research studies on intelligence, um, and he did a lot of studies with respect to twins, actually. Yeah, he believed that there was... I don't know, uh, like a lot to be learned from these twin studies, which I believe we've talked about doing episode. Have we done an episode on twin studies? Not yet. Okay. That's coming down the pipes. It's forthcoming. <laughs> yes. Forthcoming. <laughs> um, and Bert will be a great person to, to, uh, to tie into that discussion. And so amazingly, when he did this research, it yielded results that were so spectacularly unlikely that many people, even those that were in favor of what he was doing, looked at his uh, his results and sort of questioned their veracity and how accurate they might be. And so, indeed, upon closer inspection, it was discovered that not only had he essentially completely fudged his data, he even made up the people who were supposed to have been helping. Like, he just fabricated the names of people who were supposed to have been involved in conducting this research um, to, to suggest that he had sort of independent help of people who uh, would have approached this in a non-biased way. Uh... That's awful. <laughs> right? <laughs> he did that a lot, actually. Yeah, but he also, um, further, like, he also attempted to take credit for much of the mathematical work done by others. So not only was he falsifying things, he was also then just taking credit for other people who were actually doing, um, doing research. Yeah. So um, this includes, you know, Charles Spearman, who we'll discuss in a little bit. But um, he really just abused his positions of power, and he violated his own rules to maintain power and influence. Bert did a lot of shady things over his career. Um, one of them was that he, in, in addition to trying to take credit for other people's work, he also, when he was able to be put in positions of like power and authority, um, and even in some organizations where he then set the term for how long you could occupy those positions, when it came time for him to leave those positions, and people sort of you know approached him saying, all right, it's time to put a new person in charge here. And he's like, nope, not moving. And so he was even violating the own rules that he had set for the position that he was in. Um, and he did, there's other versions of this. I don't remember exactly what they were that uh, were places where he would set rules and then would break them um, in the interest of sort of holding on to power and whatnot. Wow. Well, he, he didn't seem to last forever. He was um, essentially written off as a fraud by many eventually, uh, which is something, you know, that will happen after you falsify data and, and still other people's ideas and, and do other nefarious things as yeah. he did. <laughs> 
And so now that we've mentioned him a couple times, this really brings us to one of the most important people in understanding the history of the IQ test and, and measurement. Um, and aside from the creator, the original creator, Alfred Binet, and that's Charles Spearman. So Spearman was an English psychologist, and he was born in 1863. He did many things as a psychologist over the course of his career, but arguably his most significant contribution was essentially inventing a mathematical statistical technique called factor analysis. All right, so I'm going to give a brief warning. This is my super overly simplistic explanation of factor analysis and my attempt to apply an analogy to it that may or may not work exactly as factor analysis does, but is hopefully close enough. Okay, so in a factor analysis, generally the purpose of the statistical method is to look at several variables that you are measuring and see there might be a lot of um, variability in the data reflected in those things that you're attempting to measure. Um, and then what factor analysis does is it tries to apply a specific set of um, factors, what's well, called factor analysis, to understand if that variability could be due to that particular factor that you're testing. And so if that factor has an equation that represents and would accurately predict that kind of variability, then that would suggest that that is the variable that is in a sense causing that change in the data or the, the variability among those um, those measures that you're looking at. So let's just take, um, I'm going to totally pull one out of thin air. Uh, and I, again, this is not actually representing how people use this necessarily, but this is a way to, to try and maybe wrap your head around. Let's say that we're interested in the, uh, the weather patterns over the course of a few months. And we see that there's so many days of rain and there's so many days of high temperatures and low temperatures, and maybe even a hailstorm happens and some thunder and lightning. And so when to look at all of those data that are happening, how often is it thunder and lightning? How often do we have rain? How often is it over hundred degrees Fahrenheit, that sort of thing. And, um, and, then we're going to say, okay, can we attribute that variability to one underlying factor we're going to call um, climate change? Or could we attribute it to one underlying factor we're going to call um, Smurf invasion? And so if the, uh, the formula you come up for the climate change model would uh, accurately represent what that variability is, then you might say that um, by looking at that analysis that that all of the data line up with that particular factor. Um, and then you might do the one with uh, Smurf invasion and say that all of the uh, relative variable uh, variability does not quite line up with the Smurf invasion uh, uh, formula as well as the other one. And so probably the weather was not due to a Smurf invasion, but was instead due to something like climate change. It depends on a lot of things, and you can see inside of that explanation, but I mean, hopefully you can see, that um, what one thing you're doing is you're essentially applying a formula, and you can kind of tweak that formula to more or less account for the, those differences, and it should work, especially if you have some free parameters in there, it should work most of the time. And uh, you can also tell that if you apply something hypothetical on it, that actually still might continue to account for it if the formula is written in such a way that allows that variability to be expressed inside of that formula. It doesn't say that learning is not a part of the factors that contributed to it. And as, as far as I know, in factor analysis, where it has been applied to intelligence research, 
there's never been a part of the formula that says this is how much learning is a factor of this. This is how much the teaching was a factor of this. Is, this is how much their culture was a factor in this. What they generally applied to that, uh, those performances, is the formula that says this is what we would call a general underlying capacity for intelligence. And if there is this general underlying capacity for intelligence, then that would represent the data in the same way that those data are showing up here. And so it is this statistical method. Now, I also want to comment on the fact that Factor analysis has been extremely useful in a lot of different scientific research, and it often has helped, uh, it has yielded the identification of variables that were not previously thought to be contributing to the, the variability that were seen in the data. And so I don't want to disparage factor analysis at all. It's actually a, a pretty remarkable and sophisticated statistical technique, and it's been refined further since Spearman came up with it. There's versions of factor analysis that are better at certain things than others, but um, it, it's just to say that where it's been applied to this, the thing is, is it's being applied to a hypothetical construct, something that we made up, as we talked about in our first episode, that hasn't really been defined, and it doesn't necessarily have any parameters that represent anything, any one entity in reality. And having applied this method to, um, to this testing and identifying that the variability observed in data could be attributed to this formula, this formula representing something in this particular case being called general intelligence, it really made it look like there was mathematical proof that intelligence existed because there was a formula, a relatively simple one and an elegant formula that represented those variability and it worked. Like you could apply it and apply it again and it worked again. And so this cemented this idea of intelligence as being an actual entity and whether or not it's out there. And I didn't, you know, touch on this too much before, but um, Bert and Spearman um, and others postulated that there was this sort of metaphysical force in our minds uh, that they they had names for. I don't recall exactly what they were, but some kind of mind force or brain force that was not actually part of our same physical reality, and that was what drove performance. Um, and and it went under various names and various ideas. But again, this is just that's the Smurf that's the Smurf invasion. That's you know you can apply any one hypothetical idea to these data and then say that's what it is and because you've given it a name and now you've given it a number um, it seems like it's a real thing again that's there's nothing wrong with the factor analysis here what i i'm always skeptical about is how useful that is in actually representing something for which we don't have a definition and we have no other indication that it exists in reality uh, other than the fact that we can uh, link these variabilities to this particular formula Whew, that was a lot. It was, but, you know, it's important in understanding kind of, you know, where all of this has come from and, you know, how it has been applied. Um, so we just, yeah, have a, a better understanding of how moving forward it can be utilized. Cool. So let's then move on to where this has gone over time. So we really broke down essentially the, the history of the development of the IQ and how people have treated it. So what has become of the IQ test? Well, first of all, the test is now arranged to represent abilities. But in modern time, this is no longer based on the idea that there is like this ratio of mental age to chronological age, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's no longer the case that um, the IQ is actually a Q in the IQ part. It's no longer a quotient. It's actually based on the, the scores that are um, that are measured based on the subtests of the of the um the intelligence testing assessment procedure. And uh, the scores are still derived from norm sampling. And what that means is um, 
the scores are derived from how others perform on those tests, how those other people perform. They set the criteria against which a testers, someone who takes the test, against which their ability will be measured. So if you, Miranda, take this test and then I take the same test, um, you might be the one who uh, your performance on that test sets the criteria for how my performance will then be evaluated to give me some kind of quantified score representing um, my um, my performance and in this case talking about intelligence exactly so it means that being said they are reliable now in that they produce similar scores with repeated testing right right but it's also important to note that this doesn't represent like a concrete concept it's really just only consistent measurement and it, and with that reliability is important but not the only way to measure the quality of a test yeah, for example, uh, one of the other qual qualifiers that's applied to testi testing and tests and assessments is the idea of validity, which is that the test measures what it's intended to measure, which I would argue uh, is the intelligence test might lack a validity. It measures something. I don't know that it measures intelligence. It is reliable. You do get relatively consistent scores, and it's much better now than it used to be. But I don't know that it actually is necessarily valid. Reliability, as you said, you need reliability to have an assessment or testing procedure that uh, you can believe scientifically. Um, but I think a validity component is also, well, I don't even think this. The scientific community has agreed that validity is a very important component of testing. Now, it is less common the the iq test is less common than it used to be it's not used as much for diagnostic purposes and other things um, and the trend seems to be somewhat decreasing on how often it shows up but that being said it actually is still very commonly implemented for a lot of things and it is very very commonly discussed in sort of everyday terminology you know people talk about intelligence and their iq even people who know better all the time and this there's a lot of reasons for that one of them is the is a source of funding that um, you can bill for services for people when once you've done an IQ test but the major purpose of the IQ test now hopefully and in most cases it seems to be the case that uh, the major purpose for identifying someone's quote-unquote level of intelligence is for finding a placement for those people who need services. I'm still always concerned about the potential for this leading to a stigmatization of those people, saying like, you know, we did this test and found that they had some score and therefore they are, they're just not as, they don't have the, the same intelligence as other people, so they're not really ever gonna be with the same age peers. I don't know how often that stigmatization really occurs anymore, but I always get concerned that going back to the idea we talked about where when you try and taxonomize things and break them into categories, there is a tendency to evaluate the quality of those things as being either good or, or bad or something else um, when it's not good or bad, it's just different. Exactly. And there are a lot of conditions under which one performs on a test, right? So it's important to, to have those considerations in mind. Right. It's worth considering that one of the assumptions built into some of these tests is that the people who take the test understand the objective of each test item. So what's being asked of them and that they are motivated to perform that uh, that task 
and that they do so to the best of their ability. So there's at least those three things that uh, need to be present in order to assume that someone taking the test has done so and done so well. It's just being mindful of the fact that when people have a particular performance on some kind of test or assessment, that there are a lot of factors that contribute to how they're going to do. And unless you specifically set up some kind of condition under which there's a reason for them to do well, they might just kind of go through it and do sort of whatever here and there, meh, meh. Uh, you know, this is, it is what it is. I don't care. Um, and so generally people are probably going to go through and do what they can do on those. But, you know, unless those things are specifically accounted for, um, you don't necessarily know what that performance is due to. Exactly. So like, as you were saying, you have to do your best to control for all of those considerations. Um, but still, nevertheless, the the test will only reflect on how someone would perform in that given moment and isn't necessarily or really at all some entity that gives them um, is really measuring some entity that gives them that ability. Right. And so that comes back to something we had mentioned previously about this idea that you were choosing items for the test that were things that you didn't necessarily learn and pointing out that everything you do is something that in one way or another you have learned. Um, And so there's some really cool examples of people who have shown sort of tremendous competence with respect to certain skills as they learn those skills that it might even look like they're so good at this. This must be something they just have. It's just part of, you know, who they are or they're born with it. There's been some cool research to show like it's not just that's who they are. It's actually part of the circumstances under which they learn that skill. And so one really cool example of this is um, is fairly well known. People who have are listening to this may have even heard this, but they're, uh, for, for taxi drivers in London um, that drive around downtown London, um, as far as I understand it, they're not even allowed to go out and drive a taxi um, unless they have memorized all the streets of downtown London. And if you ever look at a map of the streets of downtown London, it looks like like a spider drunkenly wandered all over the place, just going in every random direction. It doesn't, it it looks crazy. And it makes sense. You know, back in the day, people would go from point A to point B. They're not going to go a circuitous sort of left turn, right turn, make all these crazy random, they're going to go straight, you know? And when there weren't streets that just formed a whole lot of paths and those eventually turned into streets. Um, And, and so anyway, the point being that the roads there are very, very, difficult to navigate unless you are familiar with that system and you've memorized it. So they look at the people who perform well, these taxi drivers who have to memorize this, and they ask the question, well, I wonder if it is because they are just really good at memorizing roads and memorizing these spatial things, right? Um, Maybe. It seems unlikely, but that could be the case. So um, uh, there was a researcher named Eleanor McGuire, and this was in 1999 she did this study, and she was a neurologist. So what she did is she looked at the brains of people who had been taxi drivers, and she wanted to see what the difference was between their brain and maybe uh, a brain of someone who was not a taxi driver. And interestingly, what she found was that uh, the people who had been taxi drivers, uh, they had an enlarged posterior hippocampus, and that was associated essentially with uh, spatial awareness and memory of spatial navigation sort of tasks. And um, so you might make the case that, okay, well, maybe people who have an enlarged posterior hippocampus are drawn to drive taxi cabs. Okay, maybe, uh, probably not. Um, But what she actually found also was that the extent to which that part of their brain was enlarged correlated exactly with how long they had been driving, really suggesting that um, their 
uh, they were learning that skill and they were getting better and better at it the more that they did it, right? And just showing that this is one of those things that even though it looks impossible at first blush, you can get so good at it that it looks like it is easy and totally natural part of what you do. Our brains allow us to do these sorts of things. Our, our, our brains are pretty flexible and malleable. And people even start this fairly later on in life. I have no idea how, uh, to what extent the use of, uh, you know, smartphones with GPS and, uh, Uber and Lyft have, uh, affected whether or not people would still gain these skills. But at least at the time the study was uh, conducted, it had this really cool implication of that. Exactly. And there's, um, another example of that, with uh, milk crate packers, right? Yes. So uh, there was this uh, really interesting study, as you just mentioned, that was done in New York at um, the City University of New York by psychologist Sylvia Scribner. And what she noticed was that in this milk packing plant, that some of the people who worked in this factory, these were blue collar workers. They were most of them pretty, they didn't have a, a lot of education, you know, ba- you know, basic primary education and that was it. Um, but they were nevertheless able to do what looked like pretty complicated math with respect to packing milk, uh, these crates with the milk bottles of various volumes. And uh, what it what was happening was they would get an order and the order uh, would request so many, so much milk that was packed in such and such a quantities that went into a particular milk crate. And these workers would learn how to, they would look at the order and be able to fill it super quickly, identifying what needed to be placed where in the milk crates um, in order to efficiently get that unit completed. And what they found out was that they were really minimizing the number of times they would have to bend over by only grabbing the bottles that they needed to fill them the you know once to basically had to bend over once or twice to get what they needed to fill a particular milk crate or you know you know maybe three, three or four times but reducing it from the all right I'm gonna put these ones here I'm gonna go back and get a few more and then I'm gonna go put those in there and oh it then didn't quite fit so I need to replace it with you know they were efficiently able to navigate the system that required it's actually pretty co- complex math that they were using in a way uh, to solve packing these milk crates. And um, even the people who were their sort of white collar superiors, the people who had gone to college and had an education, when put in that position, they could not nearly as well uh, pack those crates uh, with that, that kind of efficiency and sophistication of that skill with the, um, uh, as, as those blue collar workers could. So it was, it was pretty impressive to see that they were able to do that. So we do have all these real world examples where, you know, people have cultivated pretty high levels of performance that would, you know, measure on, you know, some sort of IQ test or equivalent um, with some pretty high levels of, of skills and and what we've come to call intelligence. And there's actually now uh, some, some researchers, uh, Dr. Brian Roche and Dr. Sarah Cassidy, who are working on something called relational learning. And... Um, They've they've created a program called Raise Your IQ, and uh, it's online. You can get like a module for free if you want to give it a try, but otherwise it is something you have to purchase. And essentially what they're targeting is what we've traditionally kind of referred to as uh, problem solving, something that, you know, is is – on the IQ test and uh, yeah, so it's just measuring traditionally what we refer to as problem solving, something that, you know, is is on the IQ test, something the, that it it tends to or, or claims to measure. So uh, what this looks like is, you know, kind of going through doing some exercises where you are given a little bit of information and then given that information, you need to uh, work through and, and come up with an answer. So an example might be, you know, um, you'll have just these nonsense words. So, you know, a gug is greater than a 
will and uh, will is greater than a foo. So it, what is a mill greater than a pill? So it's just these random words and they give you kind of these relations between those words. And then from there, you have to derive whether or not, you know, something is greater or less. And this is kind of a, a very basic form of this. But what they're finding is that, you know, with this kind of relational training um, where they're really working on um, people getting really accurate and fast at at creating or, or deriving these relational kind of responses, um, it, it, it correlates directly with the IQ test and increasing IQ scores. That's, that's super cool. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I actually do. So there's a, there's a fun little I guess game, if you will, or, or quiz, uh, I could uh, I can do an example of running through that with you. Um, I, I'm going to try one really quick. Okay, let's give it a shot. <laughs> All right, cool. So I'm going to I'm going to use w- with colors in this particular case. The colors have no intrinsic value, but I'm going to give them values. Okay, sounds so good. They're arbitrary. All right, so I'm going to say that um, blue is taller than red, and yellow is shorter than red. Okay, so which okay. one's the tallest? Uh, red. Wait, say it again. Oh, no. Yep. That's all right. I'll fix it. Okay. Okay. Blue is taller than red and yellow is shorter than red. So which one's the tallest? Blue. And which one's the shortest? What were the other colors? It's all red, blue, and yellow. (laughs) It's all red, blue, and yellow. Uh, Yellow. Uh, So which one's taller than yellow? Red and blue. Uh, Which one's not the tallest but not the shortest? Blue. Uh, Which one would you want to be? I like mediums of blue. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Cause then you could always say something like if you had uh, one was a building and one was a person and one was a mouse, which one is the mouse? Yellow. And which one's the person? Blue. So the building is? Red. Why? Because red is the tallest and blue Perfect. is the middle and then yellow is the smallest. Awesome. I got there in so, the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that was it. And it's just to go through those examples of it's totally hypothetical, it's arbitrary, but you can sort of assign these values. And then the cool part is when you ask those implications of it, like uh, like I said, like which one would you rather be? And then you say, you give me one and I have to say why. And you have to give me an explanation in this case because I'd rather be in the middle than on the extreme ends of things. <laughs> makes sense. So Super cool. Uh, yeah, that's just that's a cool. I really like that. Um, I haven't actually played around on that website, but that's a neat idea. I love it. Yeah, they have some really great research. Um, you know, it's it's pretty interesting what they're finding, and um, it's just you know further further expansion of this IQ test, which has been around for a really really long time. So it's continuing to grow. Very cool. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Then we've been at it for a while. Okay, let's take so- it home. <laughs> uh, so the first thing I think I'll say is that um, sort of wrapping up the whole series, but uh, really on this whole episode is that the purpose of IQ originally was meant for remedial placement. This is finding help for people who were uh, for students who were underperforming. Not totally sure why doesn't really matter, but we're going to see if we can help them out by giving them a special uh, placement that will, should help get them caught up. Right. And so that's what the original intent of this sort of testing was. Exactly. And, you know, um, IQ is a measure of performance and performance is a product of context and learning. And and throughout the series, we have seen that um, in history, intelligence has long been considered a product of birth, of uh, race, of, of all of these kind of um, more innate things. But as we understand it, IQ is truly a measure of performance and performance can be learned and cultivated. Yeah, I mean... When we look at how people perform, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt at this point, we have so much data and evidence to suggest that how someone performs 
is the result of their the context and their learning with respect to that skill that it's one of those things that there's almost no room left for something like intelligence or um that idea of sort of capacity for performance, uh, that, that idea starts, that doesn't really fit in there anymore. We can account for the variability in their performance by understanding how they learned that thing in the first place and how it was explained to them in this moment and the various factors of the test that they're taking. Those are things that we have a grasp on how they work. So it doesn't really make sense anymore to try and tie in this idea of intelligence as being something that causes that, that performance to uh, show up in that certain way. And so always the question that we like to ask is what's the point what do we get out of this utility is really important and there is actually some really important utility in this test that does help that does happen and that's something um you know i was going to touch on a little bit more in here but i think this is a fine place for it is that a lot of times now anymore and you know as it was intended originally uh the testing and assessment of intelligence is used to uh place people in such a way that they can receive help and services. That is that is the case more so now than it has been in a long time. And so I really do hope that these assessments uh, that are meant to identify that quote-unquote intelligence really do serve those people well who would benefit from participating in those assessments and, and getting that, and that it allows them to qualify for those treatments and services where it needs to be. Now, from my own research, I don't, in preparing for this episode and what I've learned prior to ever doing this podcast and everything that I've learned in my career, I really don't think, I do not believe that intelligence is a thing. I just don't. And I also don't think that there's really a usefulness in trying to separate intelligence from performance. I think if we're going to ever talk about what intelligence is, it is performance in some capacity or another. Even if it's just answering questions that someone asks you, that is a type of a performance. Okay. And those same exact assessments, they could be referred to as performance assessments rather than intelligence assessments and used in the same way to place people as those intelligence tests would be and, and are used without creating that potential stigma and the supporting the idea that they have a certain capacity for learning and that therefore they have uh, a certain value as a person, like their life could be quantified in such a way based on that performance. Instead, we just look at this is what they can do this is what they need to be able to do to be successful in this particular situation. That's what we're interested in. No value on whether or not they should be allowed to reproduce or whether they should be allowed to like immigrate to a particular place or whether they should be allowed to live in a particular area. All of that stuff just goes away because we're only interested in what they can do and what they need to be able to do to be successful at, at a particular thing. That's my, my thought about that. So all of that being said, it would probably take some pretty significant change in funding and policy to make the shift from intelligence as an entity in and of itself to really considering it as performance. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I still think that it could happen um, and it should happen, but it's going to take a lot of work to get it there. And, you know, it's, there's a long history of this being established in the way that it is and correcting these types of mistakes is, uh, is a little bit expensive, I guess. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, got anything else? Not for take-homes, but huh. I think we have some listener mail. Yes. <laughs> All right. So um, this listener mail comes from uh, listener Ryan Farmer, who also chimed in on the discussion about this on our Facebook page. Correct. 
All right. So Ryan says, uh, hi, all. I enjoyed listening to the first episode related to intelligence. Um, the literature is massive and nuanced and I'd happy to provide more information. So I kind of went back and forth um, with uh, with Ryan. So I appreciate uh, I first want to say, Ryan, thanks for your comment and thanks for um, writing in. And so he responded back and he sent me um, a whole bunch of articles and videos and stuff. And uh, he really talked about he said, you have to be careful not to fall into the same hole as Stephen Gould did so many years before us. He set up history of targets only to knock them down. So one of the points I made with him was that, uh, you know, I was I was skeptical about the entity of um, of intelligence. And uh, I was sort of explaining, you know, what we were going to be covering in this final episode. And uh, he, so he sent me all of those resources. Uh, he did say that I understand your skepticism. He said, I grew up in a cognitive assessment lab. It's a topic on which I cut my teeth as a researcher and a topic I'm occasion on which I occasionally still published. He sent me a chapter he wrote, which was really, uh, really useful. So thank you, uh, Dr. Ryan Farmer, for contributing that to us. It was a helpful resource. And um, he said, I'll provide you with what I, I provided my graduate students, some key articles, which he sent. Um, he said, the evidence in previous research shows that students with below X level IQ show greater improvement in specialized classrooms than they do in um, general education classrooms. And he essentially goes on to essentially say that really the, the uh, utility of this is in finding placement services for them, which is a, a point on which we agreed and one I was planning to make um, in discussion of this episode anyway. So anyway, I wanted to say thank you very much, Ryan, for writing in and, uh, and for providing those resources, which I did actually use uh, for the development of this final episode. And uh, keep listening and, uh, and thanks. Thanks so much, Ryan. Perfect. Well, I think we'll go ahead and wrap this up here then. Um, if you want to uh, school us on something we don't know about like Ryan did, then please uh, email us at info at podcast. Um, or find us at any of the social media platforms listed at the end credits of this episode. And uh, thanks for listening to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. This is Miranda. We are out. listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms you can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. You need reliability, but not only the way to measure, um, what am I trying to say? Sorry. I'm little that, but not the only Thank way. Thank you. He said not but only not the way, the <laughs> um, but not only the way to measure the quality of the test. Switch them again. What should I do? I switch it again. <laughs> yeah. Not the only way. <laughs> it, it, it maybe people have people. <laughs> so he died on 
so he bananas. 